stage when carrying over farms They welcome me with open arms The heat is so beyond the norm The warmth can set off a broken smoke alarm Ideas coming in in clusters Then I rush you with an endless thrust of slugs That I have you ticking like you can to usher Show blatant evil, then I'll make a sequel Words escape the page, turn into hateful eight-foot beetles And start chasing people I spit so hard, I use my fist to rob I lodge a sharp twisted rod through 60 fraud artists And make a shish kebab When they, when they brought me from the hospital, they took me to the dead end. 
<laughs> uh, from the dead end, man, uh, born and raised and um, just, you know, growing up in a household where it was always uh, some Stevie Wonder playing, some Al Green and Parliament Funkadelic, those types of artists, you know, growing up, you get a love for music early. And when, right. when hip-hop came along about in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, me, just like anybody else, we gravitated towards that and start trying our hand at it. And ever since then, we've been on it. Right. And, man, you know, listening to your lyrics, man, you, you, you talk about some of everything. I mean, you talk about social issues, uh, a lot of uh, stuff, you know, out of space, you know, space age, futuristic. Man, man. <laughs> I was always want to know, do, do you have an interest in, the, in uh, astronomy? I mean, nah. What what it is, man? I'm I'm just a uh, a fan of uh, sci-fi, anything mm-hmm. science fiction related. You know, I like Twilight Zone. I'm a big mm-hmm. Rod Serling Twilight Zone fan. Watch all of those old episodes. Um, Quantum Leap, anything sci-fi. You know, it, it attracts me. So mm-hmm. when I, I I incorporated that into my writing years ago just to kind of uh, reflect that, you know, the things that I would see on some of the TV shows I, I like, I would kind of transfer that over to my music. So that's why you hear a lot of that intergalactic space stuff <laughs> on my songs a lot of yeah. times. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, you know, in, in, uh, we, we interviewed a lot of uh, Houston artists from the early days, and when they get to talking about the battle routes, your name always come up. So, <laughs> you know, with that being said, man, during those battle routes, you know, how did you get into it? And to you, who was your toughest opponent? Man, I, I got into it by accident because when I was in middle school, there was a guy that used to do it all the time. He was battling and battling, and he was going against this other guy. And uh, he couldn't beat the guy. You know, the guy was tearing him up every time. So I had one rap. At that time, man, I had only one rap to my name. And uh, he was just sitting next to me, and we was talking about it. And I just said my rap. And he was like, oh, man, like, man, you you, you got to get this guy. You know, just like pumping me up. So I went around the corner, and everybody was out there, a big crowd of people out there, man. And I rapped against the guy, said my one rap and just everybody went crazy and took on running and and good thing that good thing it was a one round knockout because that was the only rap I had. If we had to go round two, I'd have been in trouble. But once I won that, I got, you know, my confidence got up after that and then, you know, I started writing more to have a little more ammunition and then I was battling every day after that, you know. So if I'd have lost that first battle, there ain't no telling, you know, what direction that would have took me in. But confidence-wise, because I won, it uh, it took me in, in, in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so the the first group you was a part of was, was Real Chill with James Conner and Timothy Hood. Uh, right. How did y'all meet up? And y'all had did a song called Rockin' It. Did, did y'all plan on doing the full album? Yeah, yeah, you know, we we all met in middle school, man. Um, we didn't form as a group until 
uh, high school because I mean at that time it was a lot of individual, a lot of individualism going on. Everybody was trying to just prove that they were uh, better than the next guy. But um, by the time we got to high school, we had kind of was more familiar with each other, so we clicked up. And um, when we made the song uh, "Rocking It," it was probably like maybe the second or third rap record to ever come out of Houston behind uh, the original Ghetto Boys. But um, uh, we didn't have a knowledge of the business like we should have had at the time. You know, we wasted a lot of time, um, wasted a lot of money, uh, just not knowing where to place the money and not knowing how to promote market and, and things of that nature, industry things. So uh, we was in the process of working on the album, and we still have, like, I still got all those old masters of the stuff we had started on back then. We might have been five or six songs in and um, before we finally just kind of uh, dispersed and uh, and let it go and, and went our separate ways. But uh, one day I'm going to go back in and, and pull a lot of that stuff up and get it mixed and mastered, just to, even if it's just to hear it for myself. But we got songs that's like thirty years old, man, that we never released. Wow! And that that's just from Real Chill itself, huh? Right, just from Real Chill itself. Um, we we was we were in the process of doing the album because we had um been shopping uh, demos, trying to get record deals, and and all that type of stuff. So, and we had a few labels interested. And and at that time, some of the labels was like, okay, well, you know, put us together a complete project, and then we'll see where it goes. So you know, we got excited about that, went back in the lab, and um, started putting the album together. But uh, unfortunately, we uh, just fell off. Uh, we decided to, to not go in that direction, man. Other little internal stuff going on, and and we just went our separate ways, even though we were still friends. We just right. didn't do the music as a group dynamic after that. Right. So, look, with, with that being said, um, Rapaline, you know, was bubbling around that time, too. Was it any other labels, hip-hop-wise, that was coming up in Houston along with Rapalot? Nah, that was it. That was it was it. just Rapalot. Yeah, Rapalot was the first in terms of being a strictly hip-hop label. A lot of record labels was around. You know, people was trying to start up little labels, R&B, Cats, and this and that. But as far as just saying, you know, we're going to identify ourselves as a hip-hop label and um, and, and be just that, Rap-A-Lot was the only one. And then we came along and we tried to do it early on, but we wasn't successful early on like that. But um, they they laid the foundation. Jay Prince and Rapper Lot, they laid that foundation and was the first ones to really explode with it and give Houston a, a, a identity and give Houston a glimpse of the possibility that it could work. Because you got to remember, you know, we, we that was at a time where um, the South had no respect in terms of being rap artists. It was like, okay, well, they country, they ride horses, they do this, they that. Nobody took us seriously down here. So um, for for Jay to do what he did with the Ghetto Boys, the original Ghetto Boys in the beginning, you know, that was an accomplishment with Raheem, 
you know, these are some of the original artists that came out on Rap A Lot. Raheem got a major record deal, a uh, distribution deal for Rap A Lot. And um, then we came along later and, and tried to emulate that, but we didn't we didn't get to that level, you know, under that uh, umbrella at that time. Right. And so uh, your your name, it's, it's an acronym, K. Reno, for killerized, <laughs> intellectually nullifying opponent. So uh, yeah. how, did, how, how did you come up with that name? Well, you know, that's that's all from the battle rap days, you know. If you just look okay. at that acronym when you break that down, that's that's the the definition of a you know, just a just a warrior. You know, that where you're saying nullifying opponents right there. That that just puts you in a mind frame, you know, of battling. So, you know, I already had the name but I just developed the acronym to suit the name and it and it fit perfectly because you know, I'm I'm aggressive as far as, you know, lyrically and uh punch lines and you know, I I just rap in aggressive nature. So it, it fit perfectly mixed in with my history of battling. It, it fell right in pocket because that's what I that's what I used to do. <laughs> right. I used to intellectually nullify opponents. So I mean it it, it worked out. It, was, it fit perfect. Right. It, it, it was through the battle rapping that you had met Klondike, Cat, Gangster, Nilf, and did you meet any of the other SPC members through battle rapping, or did they come as you went along? I mean, they, they came in, in 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 various ways. I mean, if you talk about Nilf, Cat, there's uh, another guy that nobody knows because. He kind of, you know, he got locked up right around the time we were just starting to really pop out. There's a guy named K-Rock Def, and he was one of the greatest dudes to come out of South Park as far as battling, man. I mean, he was he was a beast, but unfortunately, like I said, he got locked up right when everything was getting ready to get started. But him, AC Chill, you know, all those guys, man, um, we met through that battle circuit, you know, because they were at a school called Jones and I was at Sterling and, and we were like rival schools. So um, when, when me and Nip had our uh, classic confrontation, that's, what's, that, that's the event that, that merged us all together because um, it was just like two heads just, just clashing together and then something had to give, but at the end it was a... Uh, it was a mutual respect that developed from the fact that you got two guys that didn't wasn't intimidated by the other one and didn't back down and and once we got cool, all those that were up under each of us by default we all became one. So that strengthened our clique. We added them, but you got other individuals like Point Blank. You know, Blank was from Chicago. He just came down to Houston and then he linked up with. Dopey and those guys. We met other guys just through other circumstances and just added them on. Right. And as a group, y'all had did a couple of albums, a couple of group albums as the South Park Coalition in the early 2000s. But, you know, throughout the 90s, y'all was known for them, uh, those, them, them great posse songs, man. And y'all was featured on a lot of each other's albums. But, uh, did y'all ever think about uh, doing a SPC album back then? 
Yeah, we did. We we almost did it. But at the time when we was getting ready to do it, most of the guys that were in the clique were like still popping in the streets, were still hot. I mean, just had things going on solo-wise, including myself. And I think that egos kind of got in the way of us being able to really come together and put that project down at a time where it it would have been it would have been well received, you know, and mixed so you 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 combine the egos with the uh, the inability to to agree on the business side of it. That's what kind of killed the possibility of it happening at that time. Now, years later, we did one. Uh, we did one uh, called Personal Vendetta. But I think even though that was a good project, the time, the window had kind of closed on the uh, on that project being as successful as it could have been if we would have done it in, like, 94. You know what I'm saying? We did, like, 94. It would have been, like, explosion. You know, because people was waiting on it. You know, because of like you said, with the click songs that we used to do, that was like the thing that people anticipated about anybody's album we dropped. It was just an unwritten rule that anybody in, in the South Park Coalition, if you put an album out, you're gonna have one of the songs at the end with everybody on it. So just picture a whole album like that. You know, at that time. But you know, unfortunately, we were, we was never able. To to do it and come together and do it. Right. And because, you know, when I when I look at the the two coalitions in Houston, you know, you had the South Park Coalition, you know, the Hall group of the early nineties and then you had the school of click, you know, the the player the players right. of the late nineties, early two thousands and it, it it was kinda similar in my eyes because, you know, you you, you had this this big clique of guys but Everybody had to go on to different labels to get their music out there. Right. Um, um, did did y'all ever did 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 anybody ever think about coming to the table and say, you know, let let let's do a label? Because between y'all, between the the South Park Coalition, y'all got a hundred albums between y'all. Right, right. Well, the the thing is. That that plays back into the part where it's like the the egos would kind of right. interfere with with that because when you talk about a label, you have to somebody has to be in, tr- in control and in charge of that label. See, somebody has to be the CEO of that label, and the CEO of that label is gonna be in charge of who does what, who says what, and they're gonna they're gonna be the ones to delegate. Uh, payments and things of that nature, and at that time, I don't think that we were on a, um, you know, a level of maturity to uh, accept that from somebody else. We kind of felt like we were all bosses on our, in our own right. So those were some of the things that interfered with that process. So. Um, it just kind of just dissolved. The, the the idea dissolved after a while, even though it, it would have been a um, a good thing to see. The business would have had to line up properly, and everybody would have had the had the satisfaction of feeling like that they was going to be 
properly represented on the project and properly represented on the business side. And those right. two things couldn't couldn't come they never came together, so Right. And just and then it's too bad that it didn't too, man, because, I mean y'all y'all was coming hard with it back then, man. Yeah, I mean, see, it it was it was it was it wasn't meant to be. I mean, I look at, like, people try to compare us to Wu-Tang Clan all the time, you know. And and what happens was the one thing that the uh, Wu-Tang Clan did that we didn't do was that um, uh, they came out first as a group. And they put an album out, and they came out first as a group. And when they came out as a collective, that gave them the strength in those numbers to be seen and heard as individuals. And it built up an anticipation for each individual project and each individual artist to come out. We came out as individuals first and then enjoyed a little success as individuals and then played with the idea of doing something collectively. So we kind of went in reverse. And with Wu-Tang, what that did for them was, it allowed each one of them to be showcased and each one of them ended up getting um, big record deals and, and things of that nature after that. But, you know, from my point of view, you know, everything happened for a reason and, and, and knowing what I know and feeling the way I feel about the industry itself. I mean, I'm kind of glad because I, I, I don't, I don't want to even be, a part of that system, a part of that, that entity, um, like I thought I did at one time, you know, in, in my career. So looking back on it, I, I couldn't speak for the, for the rest of my own boys, but I, I, I'm, I'm kind of glad that it didn't go like that because it might have took me in a direction that, that I wouldn't want to go in. Right. Yeah, and, and so while, while we're on that, man, um, did did you have any labels that had wanted to sign you back then? Yeah, I had labels on me. Um, it, it it was funny because now we going to like '93 when I had uh, released my first solo album, and even in the demo stages of my first solo album, um, that was a, a radio DJ in Houston, and I just gave him a, a copy of it. And this just to, to to date myself how long ago it was, I gave him a copy of the album, uh, the unfinished version on, on a cassette. <laughs> so I gave it to him on a cassette tape just for him to listen to. And I guess when he listened to it, he had a friend at uh, at Profile Records, uh, the same label that Run DMC and all of them used to be on back in the days. And, um, and he passed the demo on to the guy at Profile, and one day I was at home, knocked out sleep, and my phone rung, and I'm like, I don't have sleep. And he's whatever the guy's name was. He's like, Yeah, this is such and such from Profile Records. I'm looking for K Reno, and you know, me and all my homies, we, you know, we prank each other and play jokes all the time. So I'm thinking it's a joke. I'm like, Man, whatever, man, quit playing. And hung the phone up in the dude's face. You know, so the guy <laughs> called me back. <laughs> he called back and was like, yeah, man, this is such and such from Profile. You know, so once he started talking, I was like, okay, you know what? This seems like it's for real. But 
I didn't believe it for real because, like, how could he have possibly, you know, got my number and got my information about my music? Then he told me that the DJ guy that I knew had gave him the demo. So he was really excited about it, you know, wanted to holler at me about, you know, getting the samples cleared and, and signing me. But, you know, so my dad was managing me at the time. We had a label. We was doing what we did. But um, at that time, you're talking 93. So by then, I'm just starting to get into the nation Islam, and I'm I'm uh, following Minister Farrakhan and Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and I'm rapping about it. <laughs> so uh, they they met uh, with us and and basically was like, you know, we like your music, but we need you to kind of lay off of that Farrakhan stuff, you know. And and right. me and my dad, we was at me and my dad was at odds. We bumped heads because my dad was like, "Hey man, just just do it for now. Let's get in the dough, and and then you can come back and do whatever you want." And my mind frame was like, "Well, nah, man, I'm feel like a sellout if I do it. Nah, I'm not gonna do it. I mean, if I gotta denounce, you know, what I believe in, just for this record deal, and I don't want the record deal. So that fell through because I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't." uh change up my stuff and uh and we we actually went through that with a couple of labels you know just going going throughout because they was interested in the music but they would hear one song or two songs or two lines here and there where i may mention something and um they they wouldn't they wouldn't fit in that because you gotta stand these labels are, are, are jewish owned and jewish operated labels so right. You know, these are individuals who, even at that time, in my limited knowledge, you know, I, I I had an understanding of what they were about, but I didn't have a full grasp on it, but I had enough of a grasp on it for them to hear my music that, nah, we can't let this guy say this, you know. And uh, from that point on, you know, I've been straight independent with the understanding that, hey, you know, what I represent is in direct opposition to them. So there's no way I could ever be, you know, on a label or, or involved in, in, the, in those mainstream uh, corporations like that. Exactly. Yeah, I know. And one, one of the, one of the um, original mixed face, well, before, DJ Screw had came into prominence. You had another original mixtape DJ by the name of Daryl Scott. Um, yes, did, did he feature? Did he feature any of your music on his mixtapes? You know, AKA those Daryl Scott tapes, man. Nah, because early on, it was when Daryl Scott was doing his thing. It wasn't a lot of rappers that had music out. You know, Daryl Scott was like eighty. 283, 84, 85 around okay. that time. So he was doing his mixes with songs that was already popular. He was mixing Run DMC and LL and, you know, Kumo D, just the stuff that was out mainstream at the time. So when we would get the Dow Scott tape, we would just be into his mixes based on mixing the jams that we listen to every day. But he wasn't really mixing in just local artists, because it wasn't that many back then. You know, Screw came along and did that, because by the time 
Screw was popping. And even by the time Screw started popping, it wasn't a lot of groups. You know, Screw had it open where you could come to his house and do the freestyles, and that's where a lot of the Screwed Up Click was doing that. But they wouldn't put out records at that time either, you know. Right. So at that time, nobody was putting out records but us and Rap-A-Lot, really. South Park Coalition and Rap-A-Lot, UGK, you know, and maybe a couple of other ones that was just putting some stuff out independently. But, um, yeah, Dal Scott was the original, you know, uh, mixer in Houston that, that had the city on fire, but he was mixing uh, – a lot of the mainstream popular stuff that was that you hear on the radio and in the clubs. Right. And see, on uh, you you had did a song for uh, for Wicked Cricket. Right. And you know, uh, uh, the the novice people they don't know a lot about Wicked Cricket and. Can you tell the listeners who Wicked Cricket is and how important he was to the Houston hip-hop scene? Yeah, man. Wicked Cricket is the the OG pioneer of the rap scene in Houston, man. I mean, he was one of, if not the first rapper in the city, and he was unquestionably the first rap celebrity in Houston, man. I mean, he was the guy that was at the parties getting getting the club getting the club uh going. He was the one at the clubs on the radio, one of the first guys that you heard on the radio that was actually living in Houston. And um one of the first rappers that people would try to emulate and imitate and be like and and later on he just evolved into that guy who was uh a promoter and, and, and a guy who helped up and coming artists get their name going and get their thing popping. So he covered all grounds and wore all the hats that you could wear um, in the industry in Houston. And all the way up until the very end, he stayed relevant because you got a lot of guys who started at a certain time and a certain era, and then they faded out. You know, but Cricket was here in, in the... He was around in the 70s doing his thing before we even knew about him, but he was doing it in the 80s, doing it in the 90s, doing it all the way up until the 2000s, all the way up until his last days when he was sick. He was still doing show, hosting shows. He had to sit down in a chair. So he was he was just that dude because it was in him, and he was way, way older than us. But when you saw him, you never visualize him and say, well, look at this old dude still out here in the club because he was just like us. So, right. I mean, yeah, he he was that dude, man, and, and you know, he taught us a lot, you know, taught us a lot about the game and how things go and a lot of the um, stuff that, you know, I personally, you know, incorporate into my thing. You know, I got it from Wicked Cricket. So, you know, he's, he's, he, he's, he was that dude for real. Right. Yeah, soldier to the end, man. So after he passed, how, how did it affect the scene? Say it again. After he had passed, how, uh, how did it affect the hip hop scene? In it's still affecting it. It's it's affecting it now because see, you gotta understand. You know, when Wicked passed, 
that's a void that that I don't think is ever going to get filled. You know, it hasn't been filled so far. It's been a year because what he brought to the game, nobody will be able to duplicate it because they can't do it the way he did it. And in order to do it the way he did it, you first have to have the same kind of dedication to it that he had. And I, I ain't seen nobody yet that would be in a club on a Wednesday night when there's 20 people in there still doing a showcase, still giving artists a platform from the beginning to the end, you know, and, and, and never treated, but he treated the smallest individual the same way he treated one of the superstar rappers that would come out here. So he he didn't see you in terms of status. He just saw you in terms of an artist that was trying to, to come up and make it. So the scene is still being affected because that hole is not filled yet. And I, I haven't came across nobody that I can look at and say, okay, well, this will be the guy to come along and do it. So it might be one day, but Right now, it's a, it's a, it's a gap. Right, man. Yeah, and um, so you know, we were starting to get into your solo career. There, that first one you had dropped was uh, "Tales from the Black Book." And see, I want to bring everybody in on this one. You know, Danky, Big Diesel, Bumba. I want to bring all y'all in on this one now. See. When uh, uh, it's a lot of people don't know about you, K and see old schoolers like me, you know, I'll be telling these youngsters, I'll be putting them on K Reno. It'd be like, who's K Reno? And I'll pop in one of my songs, you know, get them familiar with you. So this is what I want to do. Everybody on here, when you introduce K Reno to somebody, what songs do you play? What depends on that. The age. I I play, I play like for my dad. I played Three Gods. I played the debate. I played Be Careful. Uh, uh, yeah, those. And but if like for the younger people, you know, I played some of the um, you know, wordplay. You know, different songs. It's it. I, there's okay. We don't got something for everybody. So I don't care if you're sixty or if you're twelve. If, if 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 I want to introduce you to K Reno, I'll come up with one of his songs. Right. Um, I would say I would say Annihilation of the Evil Machine because that's one of my favorites, and the wordplay in that is just you know I mean, and then it just it gives you a lot of what he speaks about. You know what I'm saying? In that one song, uh, Duality. Um, man, he you know what I'm saying? Just Splitting himself apart and doing that, I like that one. I think that those two songs, you know, regardless of what age, you know what I'm saying, will will give that person, you know what I'm saying, the idea of who this man is, you know what I'm saying. So that's those are the two songs I would I would uh, uh, share. Yeah, if I want to trip him out, I play Imagination. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and see with me. It's three. It's three songs that I play. I play uh, Valley of Decisions because you know that 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 trips everybody out. Okay, especially on the third verse when you know you 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 being you know you you being talked to by God and the devil, 
and then you start flipping it up. You know, like one was impersonating the other, man. You ought to see their face, man. They go crazy. Valley of Decisions, uh, Too Many Rappers, and the yeah. one I always yeah. come back to, the, uh, the one I always come back to, and everybody know this one, that's that Step Into My Mind. Tell you, yeah, man, when yeah. I first heard, yes, when I first heard Step Into My Mind, my, I went crazy, man, because, I mean, the way, you know, you just came in and, you, you know, when you said still a Connecticut versus virtually edible, incredible, watch me wreck the country in alphabetical order, then you yeah. start rapping down the yeah. alphabet, man. Dude, I fell out, man. I ain't never heard <laughs> that. <laughs> Last fair draw, Last fair draws, like if somebody my age, somebody who's like, you know, like the hard, you know what I'm saying, message, hardcore and message, you know I'm going you know to hit them with last fair draws. You know, and that's, that's, that's all of those, like, you know, y'all just tapped on just different eras, different times, you know, like step to the mind. That's like early on and then all the way up to last pair of draws. That's like last year. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, so I mean, you know, you try to just cover the whole spectrum, man, and and you know that's that's a, um, one of the best compliments that people could pay me when when they say that they can uh, play certain songs for any uh, age demographics and 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 can find something for somebody because I do get a lot of people that say, well, man, my mama don't listen to rap, but I can play your stuff or. Hey man, I could play my your stuff while my children are in the car, you know. So right. that, that that's big for me, you know, because um, you know, you try to make sure that you have something for everybody, and the younger that your audience gets, the the further that extends your time in the game. Because if they just being introduced to you at twelve, fifteen, sixteen years old. Then they're gonna be listening to you for another twenty years. So that just That's gave right. me a, a time extension, you know. So it <laughs> it, it, it feel it feels good to have that broad spectrum of listeners, you know, because that that's what that's why I write. That's how mm-hmm. I intentionally lay my stuff out to attract not just one group, you know, every to try to get everybody. Right. When people yeah. when, when people ask me, Carino. When people ask me, why is K. Reno my favorite rapper? I say, that's easy. He's colder than a homeless Eskimo, yet he's hotter than a fool wearing a fur blazer in the summer in Saudi Arabia. I learned a lot from your songs, though, like from yeah. three guys. I learned how a vice can take over your mind and your life. From the debate, mm-hmm. I learned that God created science. Even though I knew that already, that's an excellent point. From Ain't It Funny, I learned to think five times before I speak. From Be Careful, I learned to treat others like that's how right. I would want to be treated. You know what I'm saying? Because many of us have entertained angels unawares. From Written in Blood and American Heroes, I got an, I got an American history lesson. You know? So I just want to congratulate you on dropping seven albums at once. You know, and my, my son listens to you. And I know 
Well, my son, uh, by the way, he laughed at that T-Rash. You know, my son, he liked traps. He introduced me to trap. So when, T- when T-Rash came on, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. So we, we, he know T-Rash from the other album, you know. Uh, right. I sound like right. a swollen ankle. I said, yeah. I said, hey, I told him, uh, Malik, uh, T-Rash is back. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> had, we had to bring him back, one. man. We had to bring it was We was getting requests to bring him back, man. So he yeah. look, look, T-Rash going to have more fans than me. Okay. You know, <laughs> but just thinking about, like, say, when, um, like you said about God creating science and uh, thinking five times before you speak, see, all that's from the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. That's so right. those are things that I learned under those teachings, you know, so think five times before you speak, you know, and if you just practicing that keeps you from putting your foot in your mouth a lot of time or, or saying something before you actually can process it and think it out, you know. So, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the, the things I say that, that, that a lot of people just give me that kind of credit for, you know, I have to get a credit where it's due and mm. just receiving, yeah. you know, those lessons from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and the, and the teachings of Mr. Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam that have helped me a lot. And that's one of the things that have extended my career because, you know, you it, it puts you in a position where you are able to speak on different kind of subjects in a way that's relatable to every person, you know. So it's a blessing. Right. Mm-hmm. So... And while we're on that, Kay, what, what was the inspiration for you to do seven albums? I mean, it, it evolved. I was going to do 100 songs and put it out on iTunes in one night, just 100 songs at one time. And then I started thinking and overanalyzing, and I was like, well, if I do 14 songs, if I just every album has at least 14 on it, divide that into the hundred, how many albums would that be? And that's how the seven came out. You know, it came out to be roughly around seven, something like that. So, you know, then I started writing. I decided I wasn't going to do that many songs, and I broke it down to 12 per album. And um, that's where the, the seven albums came from. Then a brother was like, man, that's the number of God. Seven is the number of God, man. That's right on point. And that motivated me more. Right. It it, it motivated me more to do that. And um, then once I got going and got deep into it, you know, it it started coming together. And and I was just excited that it was going to actually happen because I had told people about it. And you know how it is, you know, if you you try to keep your word to people, once you tell somebody you're going to do something, the last thing you want to do is not do it. So I had already kind of spoken into existence and, and, and shared it with a couple of my friends and fans. And and I could have reneged on the friends, but I couldn't renege on the fans. It's like, oh, man, because they, they, they would ask me about it. Man, you really doing seven albums, man? I can't wait. Can't wait for it. They had already assumed it's coming. So it was like no turning back. Like, okay, well, I guess I got to do it. So, you know, just thank God that, I was able to get into a, a good writing zone for that long eight, nine month period and come up with some, some what I believe was pretty good topics and just having the blessing of, of my homie Snipe and my brother 
to uh, have the patience to record and mix and master all that stuff for me. You know, he was able to do it. And, yeah, and another thing that I had found unique about the seven albums, man, you know, usually when somebody drops multiple albums at a time, it'll be the same cover but different colors. Each, on, on yours, each album is different. You know, it's a, it's a different it's a different cover. You know, each one of them got its own identity. Right, it's, a, it's seven seven separate albums. Yeah, yeah. well, see, that's seven the whole that was the whole plan. Yeah. That's the whole plan. It's like I wanted to do it just like that, so people would be able to say that it's seven. If you saw them away from each other, if you saw album number three just laying on somebody's coffee table, you say, okay, well, this album, then you walk into their bedroom and it's another one in there. Oh, it's a different cover. You would, you would see the individualism of each one compared to, like you say, just being one cover or even in a box set, which we toy right. around with that idea too. We, we played with that idea, but, um, you know, it didn't materialize, but, you know, this is something that nobody ever did ever. So that was another motivation was to, to be able to say that no artist in no genre have ever done anything like this, you know. And 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 I get when people say, well, you know what, nobody's ever done it in the mainstream because a record label, a major label, wouldn't even allow a mainstream artist to release that much music at the same time because just of the fact that they want to drop an album and milk single after single. So in that regard, you wouldn't see it from the mainstream anyway. But it's highly possible for underground independent artists to do it, and they never have done it. So you got people that you might drop seven in a year, five in a year, but not seven at one time. So, you know, we we, we pushing for the, the world record if we don't got it already. We we got people looking into it and trying to establish that, and we underground artists, man. We don't we don't have the push and the machine behind us, so we have to fight and figure out ways to establish our legacy and to put ourselves in history in ways that nobody have ever done it, and we got to do it for ourselves because nobody gonna do it for us. Right. And while I was listening to him, I had came up with an idea. I kind of wish I was a around while you was doing it, man, what I thought would have been neat, you know, since, you know, the number seven you said stands for God, what, what I thought would have been cool, say, like, you got seven hours, say, like, song number one on this one would have been knowledge. You know, song number two on this two would have been wisdom. Song number three on this three, understanding. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, just have it, you know, go all the way down to number seven, you know, song number four yeah. on this four, culture freedom, you know? Right. Yeah, but you know, my my thing was to 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 not even make them appear to be connected, other than the fact that right. we announced that we're doing them all at the same time. You know, so the the only thing that connects them is when you see them that they numbered on the top of each one is one through seven, so people can identify which one is which. But right. um, you know, I I. I I had an idea years ago, and I might do it one day, but I, I have never done it before, to release an album that every title is a, um, when you read every title, it creates a sentence. 
you know. Like yeah. whenever the first track is called, the second track adds to it, and by the time you read track one through 15, it's time, it sounds like you're reading a complete sentence. You know, it just that would just have to be a concept album where all that type of stuff comes together. But, you know, that's just something in the future I might do. So do do you have a, a personal favorite out of the seven albums? Not yet, man. People have been asking me that, but it's hard it's hard to say because you know how it is when you listen to music, it's, it's based on your mood. So you may, you may be in the mood to hear number three, you know, or you may be in the mood to hear number six or whatever the case is. And, and over time, one of them might stand out, one of them might jump out. I don't really try to get into having my personal favorites unless it just jump out. I kind of just wait to see, you know, what the fans are going to say their personal favorites is, and then I can kind of just evaluate off of them. Because if they say, well, man, I like number four, then I might listen to it to try to see and get out of it what they got out of it, you know. Right. It's like asking who's your favorite child. Yeah, yeah. And I even said that in another interview. It was like, if somebody got to pick out who their favorite child is, they're not going to be able to do that, you know, because they right. bring something unique. They each have their own talents and gifts. And, you know, what what this one excels at, I can appreciate it just as much as what the other one excels at that's totally different. So, right. yeah, that's just and, power of God. Okay. Yeah, now I just I had just got a message. Uh, Bumblecloth, he can't talk right now, but he said that, when he introduced you to somebody, he played a whole Grand Deception album. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's, that's what uh, started a lot of people listening. Because, you know, when I first started listening to K. Reno, um, there wasn't a lot of people who knew where it was. But I think Grand Deception was the one that all of a sudden people was posted it all over YouTube and um, even in all the religious, just Christian groups. You know what I'm saying? You were seeing Grand Deception. And, and people say, who's that? Who's that? I'm all, that's K. Reno. I've been listening to him. You know, I know him, you know. Yeah, you know, Grand Deception, is, is that's my most popular song. And I never would have believed that. I never would have expected that. Like, if you go on YouTube, that's the song that got the most views. It's closing in on, like, 2 million views. And I don't have a song that's even close to that, you know. So young people like Grand Deception, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, all of the, of course, all of the, the conspiracy theorists people, they're going to love it. You know, they're going to read more into it than what it actually is. But whatever the case <laughs> is, you know, I, I appreciate the fact, you know, that that's, that's the song. Because all I was trying to do was just touch on a bunch of different topics that, that, um, that we have been taught certain ways and then uh, deceived in other ways. And I uh, just really just touch on it so people would, would have the option to go and, and research it for themselves. But, um, yeah, man, I mean, I've had 12, 13-year-olds tell me about Grand Deception. You know, mm-hmm. that's all. But, but what really helped that song, in my opinion, is the visual uh, that the guy put to it. You know, this guy a long time ago, he, he applied um, visuals to the song and put it on YouTube so that you could actually see what I was saying. And I think that's what enhanced uh, 
the attraction and the popularity of it because you you can watch it to this day, and he's showing everything that I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the video, yeah. the, the video wouldn't probably have as much views if it wasn't for that. And then you got the people that's gonna be, uh, that's gonna disagree with it and take the uh, the opposing side, but they still count as a view. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they exactly. still look at you know. Mm-hmm. They still yeah. count. So, so you you'll see you'll see ten thousand likes, but you might see three or four thousand dislikes. You know, mm-hmm. but but that's 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 just the nature of of this whole thing. And then in these type of discussions, you're gonna have those who who agree. You're gonna have those who who oppose. So right, right. But yeah. it, you know, you bring the facts to the table, and you can't argue with facts unless you're a fool. Yeah. <laughs> so right. You go from there. Right. Yeah. Did and did you? Get to witness the boxing match with Willie D and Melly Mayo? I saw it years later. I saw it on film. I wasn't there when it happened, but I remember when they went out there and did that because one of my homies went out there and boxed. My homie Dopey, he went out there and boxed uh, Freddie Fox. Right. But, um, but by the time we, by the time they got back or whatever happened, the word had already got back to Houston and what had happened. You know, Melly Mayo is like, one of my favorite rappers of all time. You know, I mean, like, Melly Mel is in my top 15 ever. So uh, when when they was like, oh, man, Willie D knocked out Melly Mel, you know, as much as I love Melly Mel, I was still glad that Willie D knocked him out because he was representing for for Houston, you know, <laughs> he was representing for Texas. Because like I was saying earlier, it was never a respect, you know, just for the South. They always had this this image of us, you know, like like our intelligence level, intelligence level wasn't the same as, as everybody else's, or we weren't able to do the same things that anybody else could do. So, you know, we let them know we can rap, we can fight, we can do we can do everything else that y'all can do. And um, when I saw the film years later, you know, because some things turn into. Um, uh, mythology after a while, urban legend after a while, and the story enhances over time, you know, and it seems to get more exaggerated. But when I saw the film, I was like, yeah, with a deep boop, knocked out Melly Mel. <laughs> so, you know, it was what it was. I saw it with my own eyes. So, right. you know, that was, that was, a, that was a, I remember that that was a big thing for us back then because it was one of our own, one of our own going up there and handling this business. Right. And um and another thing that I had found funny, uh, I was watching the the Rap a Lot twenty fifth anniversary yeah. and uh it had uh, the uh, the the segment where where you was on stage and uh you was talking about how, you know, you had uh one of the you had slid J Prince your your demo and uh, you said, man, you know, Jay Prince, you know, I'm getting you this demo, but I'm letting you know I'm going to get along with your boys, man. And Jay Prince said, money, my boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. man. I, I remember that like it was yesterday. <laughs> you know, because I was like, I was I was a young kid. I, I used to battle Jukebox and uh, Bushwick Bill and, you know, all those guys, man. And Raheem, you know, I, I didn't like none of them dudes back then. You know, we cool as a fan now but it was animosity back then so 
I don't even remember what made me decide to take a demo to Jay Prince at that time. I don't even remember. It just something was just in me to like, man, I'm gonna take Jay my um, my demo. And somebody told me he was gonna be at that that club. And when I went in that, you know, true to life. That's that the same way you just broke it down. That's that's how it happened. You know, um, I I was putting a disclaimer on it, like, hey man, I want to let you know, I I would love to be a part of what you're doing, but I just gotta be real and honest with you. You know, me and your people, we don't see eye <laughs> to eye. But he made it clear, like the only thing I'm interested in is the green. So I can care less if y'all body slam each other or you can you make me some money you know and i respected that i was like okay well it is what it is here's my tape <laughs> you know what i'm saying i gave the tape out there yeah straight up straight up yeah this was up man yeah and, and another thing and um in 05 houston had blew up man uh right you know screwed up clicked uh the swisher house and you know it was on the map and then you know, all of a sudden, man, it was like boom. You know, the it disappeared. The spotlight was off Houston, and it was like nothing had happened. So, uh, from your point of view, man, what 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 had happened, man? Was it was it an industry thing, or was it something internal, or you know, what what went on at that time, man? I mean, Houston had came strong. You know, after so you many mean, years. You asking me what happened to blow it up or what happened to to where it faded out? Yeah, it's where it faded out because it, it just happened yeah. so quick. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's just my theory. It ain't got to be the truth. I don't. I don't know. But my theory is that whenever you have artists that are hot like that, that just got the city, got the world in the palm of their hands. What what artists should always do and what labels should always do is while they hot, to funnel in new artists while they hot. Don't wait until you fade out. So when any of those guys that was going platinum and double platinum and just had, you know, the world in their hands at the time, they should have been bringing up artists up under them the way Master P did. See, when Master P blew up, he didn't wait until his light was dimming to bring in Mia X, to bring in a Sip Shock, and bring in Mystical. He brought him in when he was on fire because that's when the people are going to take to him. You know, if you hot, then everything around you is hot. So at the end of the day, P would come out and drop his album. His album was sell two million, but in his insert on the CD insert, he got coming soon, fame coming soon, sip the shocker. So now anticipation builds up for these guys, and it extends the lifespan of the artist, and it extends the lifespan of the label. See, a label and a brand, in most cases, is gonna outlast the individuals who own the label. See, a lot of people are going to be under that umbrella, but the umbrella itself should be the most important thing. You, you you could equate that to a sports team, you know. It's like Magic Johnson don't play for the Lakers no more. He's gone. 
But the Lakers are still the Lakers. They still there. They still in business. They still Shaq don't play for the Lakers no more. So the people come and go. So if these artists in Houston would have been at the time, like say Swisher House and all these guys, if they'd have been bringing in people, new guys coming up in the wings while they were still popping, then you know it might be it might have lasted a little longer. They might still be getting it like they're getting it today, you know. But when right. but it is it's not the fault of nobody because when you are trying to be the artist when you are the artist then you know it's hard to direct your attention in that many different directions because you're saying okay well man I'm blowing up and I'm gonna start me a label so you don't start a label in at the height of your own popularity. But you're not going to be able to properly give attention to an artist that's coming up on that label because you're still trying to be that dude, you know. So it's just right. a bunch of different dynamics that that interfere with that, you know. And and that's one of that's one of the factors that I think contributed to just the um, I won't use the word downfall, but just fading out fading out the way the city did because it was popping, you know, and you got Slim and Paul and Mike Jones and all these different guys mixed in with Flip signing $20 million deals and, you know, so many artists have came out of Houston, man, that have had just multi-million dollar record deals and uh, and just had the, the world on fire. Uh, but, but a move one way or the other could change the whole course of that and, and kind of bring you back to where you was if you don't make the right kind of moves and, and kind of look down the line. Right. <clears throat> so what, what what's your opinion on today's hip-hop? I mean, it it just depends on what what demographic we're talking about. Because when you say today's hip hop, you still got a lot of artists that's dropping some good music, man. From young guys to older guys, that's still putting out good stuff. Then you have other guys that are kind of just finding their way, or or might be putting out stuff that ain't necessarily something that we would be into, you know, uh, something that uh, the traditionalists in hip hop would deem to be a benefit to the culture, you know? So it depends, you know, I, I'm not into these guys who disrespect the legends that came before them and paved the way. I'm not into those types of guys. You know, I, I don't care what your music is about after that. Once you, you know, disrespect uh, a pioneer in this game, then I, I don't have no respect for you after that. But other than that, man, you know, if you make good music, man, and, and you have a focus on trying to uh, teach and help people through your music, then I'm, you know, I'm all for it. All right. Hey, Big Diesel, you got something you want to ask? Um, yeah. Uh, where can I get guest appearances number four? Because, Man, yeah, I, that's, yeah, that's going to be I've yeah, I've been um well I started buying your your music on uh C D uh universe and right. then um I started going to iTunes, getting everything I can from iTunes and now uh, I you got I know you got the website now where you get the hard copy, the South Park right. Coalition dot net. 
But uh, right. if you look at my iTunes and you put K Reno on the search engine, you go all down the whole line, look to the right, it says purchase, purchase, purchase. I got everything, <laughs> I got everything purchased. But then uh, I seen that there's a guest appearance as number four that you got, but I don't see it on iTunes. Yeah, I mean, um, I lost, man, I lost track, man. I know it was one, two, three, and four. I don't have one past four. But, I don't um, got, I, I got one, two, and three. I got one, two, and three, but I don't have four, and I can't find it. Okay, yeah. I, I, man, I, I can't lie and say I can get that for you, man. I would have to hook that up and really dig deep to find it. And because uh, you're not the first person that asked me about number four, but um, I'm gonna take the time out to just to hunt it down, man, because you know several people have inquired about that, and I I gotta get it. So just just be just be patient with me, just bear with me, and be patient with me. We'll get it. All right, brother. Yeah. Um, now, uh, what what's the best advice that you give to a new artist? <laughs> Study the history before you jump in it, you know, because if you study the history, you'll you'll gain, you should gain a, a, a respect for what you're involving yourself in. When you come in thinking that, you know, it's all about you and whatever it is you're going to do, then you kind of already um, fighting a losing battle. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a certain course of study that I feel like artists should go through and that will benefit them because you get to see patterns of uh, success, patterns of failure that other people have, have uh, taken, and you can incorporate what can benefit you, and you can uh, extract or delete or avoid what can bring you down. So just study the game and be as original as you can because this is a copycat industry, and people feel as though, if a guy comes out and he's get popping and he hot, now I got to try to come out and sound just like this guy. You know, when in reality, you're not going to benefit or succeed by trying to sound just like a guy who's already the hottest rapper in the game. You know, like when Tupac was hot, man, everybody was rapping like Tupac. It was like, it's too late, you know. So <laughs> find your voice. Yeah, find your voice. You can't be what somebody already is, and, and nobody can be you. You know, God made original when he made everybody. So you have to find yeah. your voice, find your identity as an artist, and max maximize that instead of looking at this guy and say, okay, I'm, now I'm going to duplicate everything about him. You know, you don't have a chance because the people are not going to even take you seriously. They're going to look at you like, oh, he's trying to sound like such and such. And yeah. you're already out of there after that. So even So if you come out like that, sounded like somebody else. Even when you find your voice, you out of there because they go, oh, I, mean, I remember when he was rapping like Drake, you know? So, right. yeah, you, yeah. You, you, have, you have to take the time out to just go through that uh, creative uh, orientation process when you finding your voice and, and go from there, man. Don't be afraid to be different. And, and the key to staying relevant is is being in line with the times. Speak on things that's in line with the times, and and you will stay relevant. Yep, I heard that. You know what? Um, there's two books that I'm reading that I wanted to tell you about. 
And, um, you know, I, I, both of these books are very relevant to a lot of what I've learned from your lyrics. And the first one is called Police State, How America's Cops Get Away with Murder by Jerry Spence. Now, Jerry Spence, um, not only did he uh, represent uh, Randy Weaver from, the, uh, from Ruby Ridge, he also represented the Ford Heights Four, the four black guys that were set up and framed uh, from Ford Heights, the south suburbs of Chicago, and eventually 13 years later, one of them had already been executed, but then uh, the other three were pardoned by Governor George Ryan. And there was a lot going on in the, um, in the Illinois State's Attorney's Office at that time. They had um, a contest going on called Niggers by the Pound. What they would do is when the, each prosecutor, they had a contest going on, and when they would convict somebody, they would have them stand on a scale. And then they would each write down the weight of the black person that they would uh, convict. And the first one to get to two tons, 4,000 pounds, was the winner. So they didn't care whether they, um, they, didn't care whether they had the, the right person or not. And the other book... Um, it's called The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot. And that's all that follows the CIA all the way back from um the OSS days before they were called the CIA, from Woodrow Wilson all the way to Kennedy. And it talks about all the like what you were talking about in the um in your one song, uh, Written in Blood. It covers a lot of a lot of those bombings and a and a lot of the of the how the uh, corporations were actually behind the bombings of a lot of these com- these countries to get their natural resources. So I just wanted to tell you about those two books I was reading. And, you know, as I was listening to it, I said, man, I could come up with some lyrics to educate people about what I'm learning. I mean, at the end of the day, America is a corporation, you know. Yeah. And corporate, cor- corporations are about business and money. You know, all the way down to the uh, the injustice, or the so-called justice system, you know, it's money. It's all based around money. So just listening to the story, you know, they run those brothers through that system because there are thousands and thousands of dollars a year that are made off each inmate just being locked up. So mm-hmm. that that just, you know, countless cases of, of black people that have been railroaded you know, in the system, all for the purpose of, of, of racial injustice and all for the purpose of, of financial gain. So that's one of the reasons we're doing what we're doing in terms of boycotting the holidays and boycotting Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, Halloween, whatever you could think of, because these are commercialized days that um, America has strategically structured in order to extract money from the people, you exactly. know, under, under the, under the, um, the, the guise of, um, religion and a holiday. So, but it's really just a marketing ploy to get a big money push at the end of the year going into the new year. So with all of the recent, uh, police killings and shootings of unarmed black people and that's been going on in recent years, you know, we have to come up with a, a remedy that's in a language that white people understand 
and that language is is money. So if you're not going to respond to a protest, if you're not going to respond to a rally, if you're not going to respond to any form of um, demonstration that brings attention to the injustice that that they are carrying out, that y'all are carrying out against us, then we'll respond not by uh, destroying property, not by um, uh, physically harming anybody unless you set out to physically harm us. We'll respond by withholding our money from y'all's corporations, from y'all's companies and businesses, and keep that $1.3 trillion that we put in this economy and keep as much of that to ourselves and boycott. You boycott a company like a Walmart. You boycott a company like a Macy's, uh, Target, or countless other ones that have stock in the prison system. You see? Mm -hmm. So they have stock in the prison system. So when they have stock in the prison system, Victoria's Secret, all these different companies, they are basically saying that, hey, we support this. So if y'all are not, if y'all are not, actively speaking out against the injustice that's being carried out against black people, then guess what? We're not giving y'all no more of our money because we we straight up know that y'all are in business with the prison industrial complex. So why would we contribute our funds to a system that's systematically killing and locking us up? In your song, Us, you, you said uh, slavery still legal if it's in jail. It's in the Constitution. Well, I looked it up, and you're absolutely right. There's a, there is a slavery exception a clause in the 13th Amendment. Slavery was never ended. And anyone, anyone who reads the 13th Amendment could see that slavery was never ended. And, um, no. and now that's exactly, what the, that's, that's exactly what's happening. And right. just so you know, just so you know, okay, I'm a, I'm a veteran. I'm a veteran for Kaepernick. All right. And there's a, there's a lot that's on my mind that I want to say, but this this judge, Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she did uh-huh. a college, she did a college speech where she said, make some noise. She she was saying, go make some trouble, you know, go, go out there and, you know, make some trouble, make some noise. And, you know, I said, well, when Kaepernick sat down and took a knee uh, for the for the flag, he didn't he didn't turn over any police cars. He didn't set any fires. Right. He didn't shoot anybody. She she came out and said that was dumb. That was dumb. He shouldn't have done it. That was dumb. But wait a minute, this is the same one who said go out and make some noise. But you know what? Her husband is um, heavily invested into some solar panels, a lot of things having to do with the climate change, things that are going on. So what I'm seeing is that anytime we as young blacks try to get together and um, fight for justice for something, it gets co-opted. It gets co-opted into something else. And now you get backing as long as you put at the forefront of what you're fighting for, climate change and LGBT. Okay, but if it, but once you actually start, you know, concentrating on the injustice, the racial injustice, oh no, 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 you can't do that. Well, I mean, it's America's is is built on that kind of um, hypocrisy because you mentioned Kaepernick, and the in the case with Kaepernick, 
one of the first things that you would hear, like people in, in mainstream media, whether it be CNN, Fox, even sports stations like ESPN, they would say things like, well, he has a constitutional right to protest, but I don't think he went about it the right way. So basically they're saying, okay, yeah, by the document you have a right to do it, but we want to be the ones who dictate to you how you should do it. So the question you have to pose is say, well, you know, okay, if you don't feel like he did it the right way, and if you want to complain when people burn down stores and when they throw rocks at police cars or whatever it is they're doing, if you take issue with that, but then you also turn around and take issue with an individual who's doing a quiet, peaceful protest that he didn't even bring attention to himself, then explain to me how he should do it. See, see, so it's it's a double standard and it's a hypocrisy that America have always carried out because they want you to continue to be just a quiet, good little nigga. Just don't make, don't cause no problems. Be grateful that we gave you this opportunity to play for our little sports team. You making millions of dollars, shut the hell up and go out there and play. When, when you say that, that's a disrespect to not only his intelligence, but it's also a disrespect to all the individuals who have lost their lives at the hands of law enforcement unjustly and the families of those victims. Because now you're saying that these people are not relevant. These people don't matter. These people are insignificant in the, in the, in the grand scheme. So, People are going to always have they, they, they words that they say, and you're going to have those who step out like they really, really are down for the cause and rah-rah and this and rah-rah that, but it's, it's only based around their own interests. If something comes up to where it doesn't benefit them or something comes up to where that very cause that they're fighting for, if you standing up against that, is threatened, your position is threatened, your job is threatened, then you see people for what they really are. Because you'll hear people say all day, well, I did this, I did that. But, yeah, when the folks knock on your door or give you a phone call and say, well, hey, um, we don't want to see you out there marching with them people or protesting with those people or speaking out against that, then you see who is who. So, you know, Kaepernick, what he did, he took a stand that he knew he was going to get sliced up behind. But it's no different from, you know, from what Muhammad Ali did in the 60s, you know. But see, the, 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 the key, the way to know that you're doing the right thing is when they come out against you, you know you're doing the right thing. Predominantly, if they are on your side and patting you on the back for what you're doing, you might need to evaluate your actions because you might be contributing to uh, the downfall of your people. But when white folks come out against me and they slander my views or, or chop me up behind my views, I don't do nothing but smile because, okay, I know I'm on the right path now. Right. Right. Well, you know, you remember that song by Ray Charles, America, the beautiful. I mean, right. it was a very beautiful rendition of the song, you know, right, and it's right. very respectful. So, well, when he died, 
Michael Savage came on the air and said, good for him. Who cares? He's a dead junkie. You know, like that, yeah. just, just totally dismissed him. I mean, if he didn't care, he wouldn't have said nothing. But he made it. A, Michael Savage made it a point to come on the air when Ray Charles died and said, "Who cares? He's a dead junkie. We don't care nothing about him." But then, okay, but this man sung the most beautiful rendition of America, the beautiful that there is. I mean, how many, how much more compliant can you get? Even after Georgia dissed him, he went back and, and sung that song in the Georgia Capitol. You know. So here you got well, a man who, who's but then he then he turns around with Kaepernick and 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 tells every you know like he's like you're really gonna get his disapproval if you back up Kaepernick. Well, I mean, no matter how much you 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 can wrap yourself in the flag. You see what he said to Ray Charles. So he, the, the bottom line is you they gonna hate you anyway. Anyway, well, it's, it's, and and that's the thing. It's like when you have. When you're dealing with individuals who have in their nature to hate you regardless, it don't matter if you speak out against them and it don't matter if you suck up to them because you still are viewed as the same nigga regardless. So you might as well be in, in, in accordance with what's going to be helpful in uplifting your people because just like you said, Ray Charles is not the first one that they did that to. They have disrespected the deaths of many black people. You know, there's some that have um, um, been on their side, and they still got disrespected. It didn't matter, you know. So it don't matter if it's a if it's Michael Jackson. It don't matter if it's Ray Charles. It don't matter if it's Prince. It don't matter. I've read negative comments about all of them, you know. Living and dead. So the fact of the matter is that if you are a black person who who really believes that you are an accepted member of American society and you are a citizen of this country, if you believe that, then that's fine. That's your right to believe it. But you have to be careful in in your belief of that because if you live long enough, a time will come where they will demonstrate to you and show you how they really view you. Mm-hmm. So I would rather be that guy who just straight up let you know that, look, I know what you're about. I know how you feel about me. I know what you do, and I'm exposing it through my music. I'm exposing it in interviews. I'm exposing it through general conversation, and it's not going to be a secret where I stand if I ever get questioned on it or called on it. It's not going to be no secret. And if, it, and if you didn't know, I'll let you know. You know, so we, we just have to understand what we mean in the eyes of, of this country. We, we are only as valuable to them as we, our ability to generate revenue for them. So we could be an entertainer. You could be an athlete. You could be an actor. Whatever is is entertaining to them and beneficial to them financially, then you're fine. So you can, they can allow you to make $20 million. But if they, if they allow you to make 20 million, they mean, that mean they made a hundred million off of you. You see, it applies for record labels. It applies for um, sports teams. You know, you can use LeBron as an example. When LeBron left Cleveland and went to Miami, 
man, that white dude chopped him up. You see what I'm saying? Called him all kind of traitors and ungrateful. See, this is how the slave master talks to the slave. He's ungrateful. What I had to be grateful to you for. So then he comes back, oh, it's all is good, all is well. Because now that whole business district in downtown Cleveland is back to generate millions and millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we have to understand that we have no value in the eyes of America other than what we can do for them financially. So that pulls me back into the whole boycott discussion. You know, mm -hmm. when, when you remove your money, why, why do you keep spending your money with those who oppress you? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's insane. That's insanity, you know, but a lot of cases we don't do the research on these companies that we shop with. And it's like, okay, well, it is what it is. I, all I know is I'm going to McDonald's. That's all I know, you know, but you don't know the story behind them or, or how they really feel or, did the did, did the originator and the, the the founder of this company how do he even feel about black people? You know, some of these places never even wanted black people to, to shop with them in the first place. We went out of our way to um, protest and demonstrate just to be able to have the right to eat in restaurants so white people could spit in our food. Right. So it's ridiculous. So so yeah. our thinking is backwards. Instead of saying, well, let's open up our own restaurant. We'll, instead of saying that, we say, well, let's do a sit-in and force them to serve us when they hate us. Mm -hmm. And one thing that the humble-eyed Muhammad said is that you should never force your way into places that you not wanted. If you don't want me in your place, I don't want to be in there. So, I mean, we just got to rewire our thinking because if you go back to um, – I, I know you're familiar with, you know, uh, Black Wall Street. And even from uh, the 30s, the 40s, and in some regards, the 50s, we had businesses. We had restaurants. We had everything we needed within our community simply because we did it out of necessity because we wasn't allowed to uh, patronize in white folks' businesses. So we had everything we needed. So then when the fight for integration took place and we dying and killing and fighting to be able to drink out of the same water fountain as white people, when we got that so-called right, when that law was passed and integration was instituted, what happened to our businesses? They slowly closed down. They mm -hmm. slowly closed down because our desire was to be around them. See, mm -hmm. so now here we are going full circle. We don't have any of that. We're just starting to get to where we're starting to have a consciousness of opening up black businesses and supporting black businesses. But look at the Chinese. Every major city in, the, in America got a Chinatown. Mm -hmm. the, Ch the Chinese don't go to city council and they don't go to uh, the mayor or any local government and ask permission to establish Chinatown in those cities. They just pool their resources come together as friends and family, put their money together, and they open up restaurants, banks, grocery stores. And, and right. as far as you can see, in any major town in Houston, it's so laid out, Chinatown so laid, they got their own street signs in Chinese. 
Hmm. See, so what's to stop us from hmm. doing the same thing? We feel like we got to always go through white folks' channels to get hmm. permission to do for ourselves, and that's backwards. That's okay. slave thinking. That's right. Well, you know, I'm I'm from Chicago, and um, on Stony Island, we had this restaurant called the Soul Queen. We had Queen of the Sea. We had some black um, record stores and, and stuff back in the days, and, and you know, the, the 90s. And um, with the Soul Queen, I guess at a certain point when they wanted to get that area she was in, they would always extort, like they would pour like rat droppings in the back, and at, then the city inspector would come and, um, you know, say, hey, we're going to have to shut you down. You know, try to shake down some money out of it, you know, and, um, you know, they don't, I don't know if they mess with the Chinese like that or not, but whenever we try to op- open something up on our own, the city inspectors, the fire marshal, uh, they're going to come through and say, mm, no, uh-uh, you know, going to have to shut it down. Everybody else. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, that's where our unity comes in. That's where our, um, our strength and our numbers come in because, you know, that that's that that sounds like something from back in the fifties and the sixties or before that, you know, to to if that happened like in the the nineties and the two thousands, you know, that's that's amazing. But um that's that's the history in this country because what what they they they'll tell you well, hey, you know, you don't like it, you can leave. You can do this, so you don't have to do that. Then when you actually do that, it's like it's like it's like that. It's like a relationship. It's like okay, well, this guy's dogging this woman out and acting like he don't care nothing about it, and telling she can leave, she can leave. Then when she do leave and get another dude, now he coming around, bothering her behind that. So it's the same thing. That's that's what white folks do to black people. It's like. Okay, you say you hate us, you don't want us, but the second we try to go out and do something for ourselves, you try to sabotage that. But we have, you have to keep going. You have to keep going because it, and collectively, they won't be able to to get away with that. If you have one particular business and, and, and these people are coming through trying to shake them down like that, they may not have the backing of, of enough people to, to kind of uh, combat that and the knowledge of their rights to be able to, uh, to to check that situation, and you know that's what we have to do. We have to have people in place that 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 know the system and can say, "Well, hey, no, y'all can't do that." You know, by law, according to the da, 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 y'all not able to do that. So I mean, that's where that's where we have to get. But we so individualized. As black people, that was okay. Well, I got my restaurant. I'm good. I got my store. I'm good. And my store may be on this side of town. Yours may be 20 miles away on the other side of town. Whereas in Chinatown, it's a whole road as far as you can drive. You know, and you try to walk in one of them banks in Chinatown and say, "Hey, I want to open up an account." You're not gonna be able to do it <laughs> because they're keeping everything within their own community and they circulating that money within their own community and we bring in 1.3 trillion as black people a year that's how much money we bring into the, the united states economy in a year's time but we don't get any of that not any of it we don't get hardly any of that circulating within ourselves because every dollar 
the majority of those dollars we put right back in white folks' hands. Mm-hmm. Plain and simple. Right back mm-hmm. in white folks' hands because of frivolous spending. Because we spend money on tobacco, tennis shoes, drugs, cigarettes, cell phones, movies, all these different things, you know, that we we spend hundreds of millions and in some cases billions of dollars on and it's a waste. And the things that we should be spending that money on, we don't exercise the knowledge and we don't exercise the um the right to do that. We don't we don't do it because we don't have the knowledge and in most cases and in other cases we won't unify with each other. So now with the decline of the, the dollar's decline and the American economy is getting weaker and weaker and sooner or later the dollar ain't gonna be worth nothing. So the the smart thing for us to do is not to try to build up a lot of money and accumulate a lot of money because the money's not gonna be worth something. The smart thing to do is to take the money that you have while it's still worth something and buy land. That's right. Because when the money fades and the money's not worth anything, but you purchase land Okay. You can you can still feed yourself. See, yeah, right. because yeah. what's ha- what's gonna happen when when having a million dollars in cash means nothing? See, right. the man that got the land where he can grow his own food, that's who's gonna eat. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's what's up, man. So, uh, thank you. You got something you wanna ask? Um. Yes. Uh. Do you have any live performances scheduled, Kareno? Coming up? Yeah, yeah, we got some stuff coming up. Um, I'll be uh, doing some next month on the fifth here in Houston. Uh, I got a show at this place called the Den on the North Side. I'll be doing that on the fifth. Okay. And, um, so you know, if y'all come to town, come on. I'm through. coming. I'm coming. We're gonna we're gonna make it pop. Already. <laughs> oh, also, also, um, with the seven albums, um, I'm planning on doing one video off each, for each album. You know, one okay. song off each album. Okay. You know, so uh, we're gonna do. I'm trying to en- enhance my uh, my presence as far as uh, visuals and all that. I hate doing videos, so I got to just <laughs> make myself. Yeah, I'm lazy. I hate doing videos, <laughs> but I'm, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do like one video off of every album just to really try to keep the promotion going on this thing. Yeah. We ain't going to stop pushing. We ain't going to stop right. pushing that we did seven albums. Nobody ever did this. We're not going to let it go by the wayside and then some cat come along next year and do it and get That's all right. the credit. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. We got you, K. We know yeah. we got it, man. Already. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, KU. You know, so you you underground, and a lot of people don't know about you, man. But it's just time to, for you to receive your flowers while you're here with us. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, man. I mean, yeah. it's, and and it's, it's 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 people like y'all and and other people that um that have been doing that. You know, so mm-hmm. I appreciate, it, man. One thing about me, I'm I've never been at a lack of um you know appreciation as far as giving it and receiving it. You know, I've been blessed to always get a lot of people that that have um you know told me you know that they got love for me and have looked out for me. So, I mean, I'm thankful. I'm grateful because you know because I've been blessed. I can't. I really don't have a lot to complain about. As for I don't have anything to complain about. You know, and uh, but as far as my um career goes, you know, I've been blessed, man. I don't work for nobody, man. I I just all I do is music, 
And, you know, I, I've been able to, my music has taken me all around the world, man. So, I mean, I, I, I'm just coming from a, an underground guy, just coming up in the dead end in Houston, man, to where I am now. I wouldn't have never imagined everything that I've done of significance music have been the platform to, to get me there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm 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 thankful, man. I appreciate y'all for bringing me on and, you know, showing me love, you know, playing my music, so it's all good. Yeah, and so, and another thing, Kay, with the, the seven albums you dropped, how many albums that put you at now? I think I'm at, like, 37. I don't know okay. for sure, though. I'd have to count. I don't know. That, could, that number could be wrong, but it's going to be 36, 37, somewhere up in there, you know, because I, I, I had around around 30 before I did this. So, you know, I'm trying to uh trying to catch Prince and Stevie Wonder, man. It's going to be hard to do. It's going to be hard to do, man. These dudes running around here with 60 albums, man. That's, you know, but I mean, you just want to keep on um putting out good music and you don't you don't want to cheat quality-wise. You know, you can put out a lot of stuff. I could have 70 albums if I just put out anything, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a process. You want to be detailed and make sure that everything you say have a purpose and every song had an um, ability to, to reach somebody and help them. So you got to take your time when you do that. Um, All right. So, hey, Big Diesel, you still there, man? Yeah, yeah. Hey, love. Hey, want to do something right quick, man? You want to go back to back with some of our favorite K. Reno rhymes, man? <laughs> man, man? Let's do it. What you what you got in mind? Man, you you kick it off, man. Oh, you talking about? Oh, so this is what we was talking about before, K. Reno. Me and our fresh, we was uh, reciting some of our favorite, some of the coldest K. Reno lines. Let me see the first one that comes to mind. Like, Ike, I beat and bruised the mic. If I use it right, you're going to lose tonight. And every pen you choose is going to go on strike and refuse to write. Yeah, see, y'all, yeah. Know, I, y'all, y'all about to start saying stuff that I don't even remember the words to. That's cool, man. Because, like I say, it gave me, me a chance to hear it from a, uh, from a perspective of somebody like as if it wasn't even me that wrote it. So, yeah, man, I, that's... Yeah. That's cool, yeah. man. I listen to solid music. Made don't look stupid. How somehow he doing sign language with no hand movement? <laughs> that's what I'm talking about, man. I mean, like that's some. See, the, the ones y'all saying, these is ones that don't get mentioned a lot. You know, yeah. People speak, quote certain lines that I said, but y'all going into the the deep stuff. Y'all, yeah, y'all, walk, y'all swimming in the deep water, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. K. Reno, K. Reno respond to God, but y'all mow your lawn. You so boring, you can make a dude in a coma, young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Mikasa is Sukasa. Welcome to Mikasa. No, no, Mikasa is Sukasa. Coming to Mikasa while I lock you in the basement and shot demons about you. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you try it, your hand? Why don't you try your hand in something else? Go and sell some Avon. The nursery school route sound like you wrote this shit in prayer. 
Yeah, we can go on uh, for hours for this. No, this, you know, this we just we just having a little fun, okay, we know. But you know what? Uh, that that's that's been a trend here and there. Um, like, what's your what's your favorite K Reno line? And then people would just come, and it would just, that would be like a real long trend. And all yeah. half of the lines that like, oh, um, y'all can't. I I got about twenty line lines from y'all can't touch this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, see, see, that's what I'm saying. I, I gotta start. I gotta start being more active on the, on that page, man. Just to, just because y'all be showing love, man, on that page. I, I gotta start making some appearances on now. Right. Yeah, man. Yeah, I might throw down a few of my favorites on there. I might type in a few of my favorites on there, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I got. I, I got one more last one. This is it. This is it. This is the last one. Knocked up your girl and left a perm bit. The baby came out of her head, so that tells you where the sperm went. <laughs> and, uh, look, and, and that's one. That's that's the, that's one of the old ones, right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah see, that one, I was real raw. You know. Yeah, yeah. No question, man. No question, man. What you know, it's that's. I mean, I'm I'm thankful, man. You know, to have have multiple quotables like that, man, because. Uh, I've been doing it so long. I guess I, I guess I should have them. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah man. cause I mean, hey, cause I mean, the way you going right now, man. I'm 35 right now. If I was to listen to one album a year, <laughs> I'll probably be what in my 60s, 65, yeah, 66. Yeah, that that'll put you in your 70s, man. One a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you'll be a, you'll be an old man by the time you get through all of them, you know. But but I mean, but that but that's that's a blessing, you know. It's like man, you know, like say right now, you know, a person can listen to one album a day, and it'll take them a month, you know. So almost a month in a, in a week. So I mean, that's a lot of music, man. That's a yeah. lot of music. Hey, thank you. You had some rhymes you wanted to throw in now. Huh? As a, you had some rhymes you wanted to throw in now? <laughs> Let me see. Oh, no way. Because you know me. I, I came well. Y'all know I came well. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, man, K, it, it was it was a blessing to have you on the show, man. And uh, there you have it, hip hop is another backstory told by another hip hop legend. And you heard it here first at Graffiti Talk Radio. We don't talk about it because it didn't happen yet. Peace and may old school hip hop live forever. Yes, sir. Peace. Peace.